everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week's show is all about prenatal nutrition. And even if you don't have your own little gluten-free bun in the oven, you'll want to tune into our conversation with Lily Nichols and find out just what's behind the history and the politics with the uphill battle that is our publicly known nutritional guidelines. Has your doctor been giving you some vague BS when you have inquired about diet? Now imagine getting those weak responses when you are growing another human being inside your body. That is why Power Athlete battles even the tiniest, cutest, babiest bullshit with no-nonsense guests like Lily Nichols. Here it is, episode 323. Power Athlete Nation, what's happening? Perfect timing, sir. This is Luke, Dex, and John. And John, John, John. This is another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. 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 I heard an ing out of that one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, I was going to go fruitful show, but that doesn't make sense. It was a um, poor attempt at a pun. We throw a lot of stakes into the ground. That, I, that's right. We do. And choline. And choline. Yeah, that's for, <laughs> that's for reaction time. C.H. Choline. C.H. Choline. Which is also my DJ name in high and school. And a lot of egg yolks. Yes. Tex is the butt steak egg, of egg on a lot my of face. yolks. Am I hey right? Oh. All right. Puns are out, but I'll tell you what's in. Um, man, we figured we'd give you an update on what the heck is going on in Power Athlete Training. We're in the midst of Jack Street's growth factor. We have PRs Ooh. left and right. Week after week, people are getting jacked. Smashing it. Finishing up on... Strength speed. That's right. And field strong. Mm-hmm. And, and rolling into density. Density cycle, which is epic. Oh, yeah. So essentially, we're going to pull together some hypertrophy deals, but then use your fully coordinated bodies based off the strength speed, and now apply that to mm-hmm. the bar back, going back to the barbell. To get the thickness. And Johnny Watt is in Johnny Watt training camp. August is NFL football. Yeah. No. Uh, all football training camp. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. uh, NFL usually goes third week of July. Uh, and then, you know, obviously college starts like the first, you know, week of August. So, yeah, Johnny Watt is in deep in training camp. So there'll be some heaters coming in. And I'm super excited because, you know, this actually means that uh, the world starts again. You know, once mm-hmm. the NFL comes back yes. and starts playing football and Monday Night Everyone's Football, Thursday night, all of a sudden everybody's tension just goes down a notch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got beer sales go up, you got hot dog sales go up, NFL jerseys with slightly misspelled names go up, um, searches for John Wellborn go up, (laughs) all sorts of hot, hot stuff. But here's what I'm talking about. We're still in the heat of summer. It is hot out there. If you're walking around with your shirt on, you're doing it wrong. If you're driving with your shirt on, I can remember I went all summer in Illinois shirtless driving. You You get in the car, you take your shirt off, you just sweat but you sweat with traps and cantaloupes for shoulders. And you know what you need for that little bit of Johnny Bod. Ooh. So if you're not stacking Johnny Bod on your training, you are fucking missing out. It's because true. it's Armageddon every week, shoulders, abs, calves for those of us who have them. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? Well, uh, you know, I mean, technically, if you had calves, I don't know if you need to train them. But if you're, you know, feeling like you're a little low in the calf department, maybe a little extra calf work. I don't even call them calves anymore. I call them cows. You know what I'm saying? Because they're so big. No? Yeah, we got it. You get it? It's a joke. Ah, you don't get it. Ladies and gentlemen, head to powerathletehq.com slash training to get your hands on any of these programs. And while you're at it, if you're surfing the web and you're Googling flat earth videos text, why don't you head by the podcast page for Power Athlete Radio on iTunes and leave us a review. Five-star reviews only. You don't leave us a five-star review. We're going to go out in front of your house. We're going to tee up and we're going to drive a bunch of golf balls through your window. I thought we were hitting with a sack of oranges. We're out of oranges. Now it's the golf balls. Uh, Intern we want to leave them orange. And, and, and I'll tell you this. If you're listening to this and you go in there, make sure you use the term rock star. Rock star. That's how we will know that you listen to this podcast. And that everyone that's else has made up those. Uh, Texas hired a bunch of Bangladeshis to go uh, give us with reviews. those inside <laughs> jokes. People that I'll tell you this: people that they have love the not listened to the show and then read the reviews will be like, be, "What?" That's what I'm kind of worried about. But then I'm realized that we care about nothing. And we do this purely for our own pleasure and our own benefit, which leads us into 
our next guest, Louis I mean, Nichols. It would be great if we were like Rogan making $90 million a year on the podcast. Oh my God. More money, more problems, John. You know, I've always said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw it. It was like, Rogan makes $90 million. I'm like, man, just talking to people. Mm-hmm. He gets good people on his podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so do we. Yeah. Anders Ericsson, uh, Angela Duckworth, John yeah. Wellborn. Rob Wolf. The crew. <laughs> Kyle Turley. KT. Yeah. And this week, Lily Nichols, mm-hmm. boom, who is all about eat real food. She's just going to school us all up on prenatal nutrition. A uh, couple books, Real Food, Real Pregnancy, right? That's her book now that you can get first chapter to. Uh, her website, all of her social, we're going to give it out. It's, uh, man, it's nice to have non-crazy people on. Love and uh, I guess reassurance that we're not as crazy as maybe we sometimes think we are because everyone else is so crazy and you just got to sit back and reflect no, we're like the, we're that crazy am i the crazy one or are these people crazy? I think that every single day and maybe we're the crazy ones enough about us let's get into it another episode of the premier podcast strength and conditioning ping, ping, lily ping. nichols here we go so lily nice to meet you my name's luke i'm john hi luke hi john tax we've been in comms and we connected at Lindsay's. Lindsay's course, I heard you speak. So Yes. And right. likewise, I heard you, yeah. John, on the dad's panel. Ah, uh, yes, the dad's panel. Yes. I heard you dominated. I no. I was I uh, dude, I totally got out overshadowed. Just one of just one of the panelists. Yeah, I was just a another, contributor. I was just another person. I, I really wish I had as much hardship as everybody else. I'm like mm-hmm. listening to these like heroic tales of like I was a woman, I became a man, and now I'm a father. I mean, like, I'm like, man. Yeah, lots of ins, lots of outs on that. Like, movie. there's just a, like, a lot of complicated stuff. I mean, Matt uh, Aporta over there with, like, this, like, couldn't get pregnant for years, and then this adoption. I mean, like, I'm, like, listening to this stuff. I'm like. <laughs> Different perspective. Yeah, no, sure. it's crazy. Hence the purpose of the panel. Hence uh, the purpose of the panel. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, Lily, um, why don't you give our listeners... A little bit of background on you. You know, how did you get into the gig that you're doing now? And or why don't you start with what you're doing now and then give us a little history? Yeah. So uh, I've worked in the prenatal nutrition sphere for most of my career. Uh, my background is as a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and also a certified diabetes educator. And once upon a time, I used to be in the the fitness space a little more. I used to teach Pilates for a while, um, but. I have worked in so many capacities in prenatal nutrition from public policy level with the state of California with their gestational diabetes guidelines to clinical practice, working one-on-one with hundreds and hundreds of women throughout their pregnancies to working in private practice, consulting research. um, And now I'm doing a lot of writing. So most people know me from my books, um, Real Food for Pregnancy or Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And Really, I think what got me lit up about working in this field was my work with gestational diabetes and learning about some little known statistics about blood sugar management and pregnancy and how a person's blood sugar control can actually, they call it like pre-program, it's intrauterine programming, can impact their baby's development and their risk for developing type 2 diabetes or obesity later in their lifetime. So just to throw out like a really interesting one um, for moms who have poorly controlled blood sugar in their pregnancies, their kids face a sixfold higher risk of developing type two diabetes by the time they're 13. So I feel like a lot of our public policy stuff and nutrition is looking at, you know, kids aren't moving enough. They're eating too much sugar, too many refined carbs. And, you know, their diet is crap. And, you know, that's definitely playing a role, but there's also something to, you know, kids were also eating a lot of sugar and refined carbs 30 years ago, and they didn't have near the rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes now. So there's something to this sort of programming of our, um, of our health future and risk of disease based on the environment we're exposed to when we're in our mother's womb. And that is, I think, the most interesting part of the prenatal nutrition research um, for me. And ultimately, a lot of my work nowadays is really taking a close look at what our prenatal guidelines are for nutrition and looking at does the research actually support the recommendations that are there, where are the gaps, where are the places we can improve so that, like I said, we can give our kids a better chance of a healthier future. Is uh, gestational diabetes more of an issue today than it was 30 years ago? Yes. 
And the rates of gestational diabetes are actually going up right alongside the higher rates of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in the general population. I mean, the cause or effect, not to cut you off, but like, is there, um, I mean, like, what happened within the last 30 years? I mean, for expecting mothers, I mean, have the guidelines changed? Have the medicine, like, what is the, would you say would be the catalyst that you'd point to? Well, one thing to think about is that the people who were born back in the 1980s, 1990s, when the dietary guidelines had been put out promoting a really high carbohydrate intake, so 45 to 65% of calories is still the recommendation, they were exposed to that way of eating, this low-fat, high-carb way of eating in utero, which may have affected the development of their pancreas and their insulin sensitivity and all of this, and now they're having children. So I think the guidelines are, you know, it's all correlation, but I think the guidelines are playing a role here. There is certainly a number of nutrient deficiencies that impact our blood sugar metabolism as well. So it's not, not just the whole high carb thing, but we're just eating less nutrient dense food. Um, although there's a tendency when you like reduce your intake of refined carbohydrates and sugar, you're usually eating more nutrient dense things in their place. So there's like definitely some overlap there, but I think there's something to be said, to be said for that, um, that epigenetic effect of what we were exposed to in utero. So Lily, the majority of our work, when we, we work with folks trying to fuel their training predominantly with nutrition. And I have a feeling that the, the guidelines and, and principles closely align what you talk about prenatal, but whenever we get into this, like we'll present the research, bro, you know, present the research, show me the research. It's like a cesspool of research in the sense that there's always conflicting studies within, I would say like the health and wellness, nutritional yeah. research index or whatever you want to call it. Is there, is that the same deal within the prenatal space where you can come up with this, like what seems to be brilliant study that comes to a pretty pointed outcome, but then someone just, boom, presents the absolute opposite outcome with another well-crafted study. I mean, certainly, there's always disagreement in the research. And that's probably the most frustrating thing is when you get through a study and you get to the end, they're like, well, we found this and it's really interesting, but more research is needed until we can draw any conclusions. And I think this is the place where you kind of have to take into account not only what the studies are, and being really critical on the methods, by the way, because there's a lot of really poorly done studies out there. Um, and we have to be really careful, especially with epidemiology, where you're like looking back at what happened and then trying to draw all these conclusions from these correlations that may or may not have anything to do with each other. Like that's that gets into kind of tricky territory. Um, but when you actually start seeing the clinical outcomes firsthand, I mean, it wasn't like I immediately started out recommending a lower carbohydrate diet or, you know, all this real food stuff for pregnant women. Certainly I was gearing on the real food side of things, but I was, I was afraid to go against the guidelines, just like so many dietitians are, especially with pregnancy. There's so much at stake. You don't want to do anything that's going to harm anything, right? It's like, so let's just give really watered down advice and like go with the guidelines because that's what they say. And we can't be liable for anything if we're following the guidelines. And when it came to gestational diabetes, it didn't work. I mean, more than half of my clients required medication or insulin. Sometimes their blood sugar numbers would get worse following the recommendations that I'd give them. I mean, half your diet coming from carbohydrates is crazy. And when you're looking at what the recommendations are, I mean, you're supposed to go no less than 175 grams of carbs per day in pregnancy. That, that's the official recommendation, which by the way, has no evidence base for it. And that's really the whole reason my, my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes even exists was to point that out. Like we have no evidence base for this mandatory minimum that's supposedly etched in stone. But moreover, it doesn't make sense because if somebody has been diagnosed, usually they have failed a glucose tolerance test of a minimum of 50 grams of glucose, so 50 grams of carbohydrates, and then you're going to recommend that every meal they need to be eating that amount or maybe more carbohydrates, and then we're going to expect them to have normal blood sugar levels. Like 
there's some cognitive dissonance going on there. And then there's so sometimes there also, you have to just like use common sense. Well, as we've said on this podcast for years, common sense is anything but common. Um, we also know that, you know, your ability to process carbohydrate and your blood sugar and a lot of these issues tend to uh, kind of remedy themselves, especially with exercise. And like, it's pretty interesting to see the exercise recommendations for pregnant, for women in pregnancy and say, Oh, you should walk yeah. until, you know, you feel like a light, you know, um, a sprinkling of perspiration on your forehead and then sit down. And it's like, it's right. pretty interesting. Like, um, you know, my kids are seven and three. And I remember going through and like looking at these recommendations when you go to these like baby classes and thinking like, uh, I would much rather go talk to my mom and take some old wives tales based off of what my grandmother told her felt like yeah. way more accurate uh, as a, uh, um, you know, some dietary recommendations and things to eat and this. I mean, it just it blew my mind. And then the the other thing, which uh, I, I haven't done really dug a, done a deep dive into this stuff um, since I had my own kids. But I remember my dad was like about a I think my dad was about an 11 and a half pound baby. And uh, I was a 10 and a half pound baby. And we were like, all my brothers were all nine and 10 pounds. And my mom never had any gestational diabetes. And I remember like when I, we were talking to the doctors, they were like, you know, it's pretty rare today to have a child of that size where, you know, the mother doesn't have gestational diabetes. And that was like, like they, like, uh, I remember sitting in there and talking to, um, uh, my wife's doctor and telling her like, yeah, I was a 10 and a half pound baby. And my mom had me in 45 minutes you know, like natural childbirth and like kind of like went through it. And she's like, you know, that uh, we just don't see that anymore. We don't see children of that size unless the mother is, you know, has put on 75 pounds and has gestational diabetes. And then we tend to see like technically that over 10 pounds. So I thought that was just interesting that they don't observe that as much. Yeah. Well, it's kind of tricky because probably back when you were born, they weren't universal screening for gestational diabetes wasn't a thing. So there's that to consider. Like I was also a nine pound baby and my mom was not screened for gestational diabetes. That didn't become the norm until the nineties. Okay. So we don't know, like, I don't know, maybe my mom had GD, maybe not. Although I don't have any of the predisposing factors that you would expect from like excessive fetal growth from a place of elevated blood sugar and elevated insulin levels in baby and elevated like extreme like fat be some of the factors like, like like i i mean i was born in 76 but you know i'm also right. like it also makes sense that you know i'm 66 so it probably ends up kind of fitting right. within the scale of it but i, I just wonder I like that's for sure part plays a role as well as like how tall you are like people who are tall parents tend to have bigger babies so the size of the baby is not necessarily a sign that it's a blood sugar issue with mom. It can be, but it's, it's usually a disproportionate growth in pregnancy. So if you were like a big baby, but you didn't have excessive like abdominal fat when you were born or like excessively large shoulders or no hypoglycemia at birth, um, and you were also like a tall, like a long baby and your parents were tall, like it's probably not a gestational diabetes thing. Um, usually with gestational diabetes or any type of diabetes in pregnancy, just elevated blood sugar, you're seeing this disproportionate growth. Um, you can see it on ultrasound actually, where there's like an excessive like fat pad in the abdominal region, especially. They're just accumulating a lot of excess body fat and that's more to blame for their large weight versus just being this like exuberantly healthy, larger size baby, because those exist too, you know? So Lily, I'm going to backpedal a little bit. Uh, let's just say we have listeners that have no fucking clue what we're talking about right now, because I would imagine I'm four or five weeks out from my first child. But if you were to bring up gestational diabetes two years ago, I'd have no, I'd be like, what are you talking about? So let's, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's start from square one for some of our blockhead Back listeners. Tax yeah. talk for asking for a friend and I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. So what we're referring to is elevated blood sugar in pregnancy that either first occurs in pregnancy or is first diagnosed in pregnancy. So that can mean two different things. On one side, you have blood sugar that's elevated purely because of the hormonal changes going on in pregnancy, the insulin resistance that naturally happens, the weight gain that naturally happens. And then on the other hand, you have pre-existing 
blood sugar issues, insulin resistance issues that are first being identified during pregnancy. That's actually the majority of what we're seeing nowadays. And if you screen early in like the first trimester via like your average blood sugar, your hemoglobin A1C, that actually catches quite a few cases of what was really pre-pregnancy pre-diabetes or maybe even undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, but we're calling it gestational diabetes because this is the first time that we're, we're identifying it. Interesting. And so what, it, so when a mom carries a little baby, what, why could a, like a healthy fit, um, switched on diet mom test positive for gestational diabetes all of a sudden when they're a carrier for offspring? So that might be the case. First of all, not everybody has the typical risk factors for gestational diabetes. Sometimes it just happens. Like maybe your pancreas is not adapting to the metabolic demands of pregnancy in the way that we would expect, which is like your pancreas has to pump out double or triple the amount of insulin just in a normal, healthy pregnancy um, by the time you're in the third trimester. So that's kind of a lot to put on your pancreas. So some people don't adapt to that well. And that is just luck of the draw. We also have to consider the way that it's diagnosed is not always super accurate. So and I've written about this extensively, but you know, the typical way that we diagnose it is a glucose tolerance test. And for somebody who's really fit and active and maybe also tends to eat a lower carbohydrate diet, your production of insulin from your pancreas is adapted to what you're eating. And we've known since at least the 1960s, and this is like data published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, it's not like some podunk journal, um, that if you deprive people, deprive in quotes, people of carbohydrates for a period of time, they're going to have an abnormally high response to a glucose tolerance test. Whereas if you feed them a higher carbohydrate diet for a period of time before they do a glucose tolerance test, say a week or so, um, if their body is truly adapting to that and they have the insulin production to, to manage it, over the course of that week, they will adapt so that their response to the glucose tolerance test is quote normal. Um, and we see this in humans. We also have data on this in pregnant horses. It's just, it's what happens. So if you're somebody who eats lower carb and you're also like, you just know you're a very metabolically fit person, you might want to take that diagnosis with a grain of salt. I mean, it really comes down to where your blood sugar, where your blood sugar levels averaging after the fact. And this is why a lot of people tend to opt out of the glucose tolerance test and just monitor their blood sugar at home and see what's happening because a glucose tolerance test doesn't always tell the full story. Um, that said, for somebody who's like not real fit, not real metabolically active, you know, regularly downing smoothies or juices or sodas or things that are high carb, like technically if your body is well adapted to that, like you're eating that stuff all the time, you should have no problem passing a glucose tolerance test. It's the people who are like, you know, eating like protein and veggies mostly your pancreas might be like, holy cow, what is this huge bolus of sugar coming in? And you might not match that um, big insulin demand because that's not what your body is accustomed to. Dude, is there something like, uh, and I'm maybe this is getting too deep in the weeds, but like, our, I mean, obviously like the, there's diet recommendations for pregnant women, but uh, do the doctors recommend like the tracking of macros or tracking of like total caloric load in a day? Or are they just like, oh, free when you're hungry and, you know, we'll kind of let the scale be the determining factor. Usually the latter, if they're even talking about nutrition at all. I mean, most of the time you go in for to see your care provider. It depends on the care provider you're seeing, of course, but oftentimes your your advice is limited to like a pamphlet or like, are you eating healthy? They track your weight. Okay, it's on it's your weight is what we'd expect. All right, you're good. If your weight's high for some reason, then they might be like, watch what you're eating. And then that's it. And it's usually really watered down information overall. Um, unless you're working with somebody in the nutrition space, you're usually not getting very detailed advice. I know uh, 
so Ash and I are going the birthing center route, which is nice. for our listeners, it's not quite hospital. It's not quite home birth. You basically have like these experienced midwives that are just kind of like whipping the baby out or something like that. But as part of this, we had to go to this group class and we're still in it. And uh, so we're with what I would consider normies. And I guess we, I just keep forgetting how fortunate we are to be in this space and know some of this information about real food. Um, and there's vegan in there. Shocker. And, uh, the, the husband or the vegan, wife, vegan Both. pregnant women. Huh? Both? Yeah. And so our birthing uh. center did a great job and they're like, listen, we understand, but here's a, like they had a whole day on nutrition and talking real foods and the importance of macronutrients and micronutrients. And they even acknowledged Lily, what you're talking about, you know, because there was like one couple in the room that apparently was fit and may not be like, totally metabolically deranged, which is me and my wife. And they're like, if you're a low carb person and she's, she's super lean chick. They're like, you need to start carving up three weeks out from your glucose test. Cause if you fail it, we like, it's going to be a problem with the regulation oh. for us to be a birthing center in Texas. So leading up to that point, she's like, it was like smoothie diet and ice cream every night <laughs> and she celebrated it. But getting back to um, the main point is like folks come in totally unprepared just with base level of knowledge on any sort of health, wellness, exercise, diet, nutrition, these folks... Well, parenting too. Many of them unprepared. Well, I got that yeah. figured out, dude. I got a system. Well, it just... Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm with you. to answer your question, I guess, in this space, um, and there's kind of like some, you know, it's just a bunch of like free midwives floating around this clinic. So they, you know, they... A lot of them, the gal who came in and gave this talk was a woman who actually like grows all of her own produce and like very, you know, earthy, I guess, crunchy, lots of granola. Hippy dippy? Yeah, that's it. And, um, but she, she schooled everybody up and I, I got to say like, man, it was, it, there's a couple nuggets in there and considerations to make with, uh, uh, you know, with being prenatal, uh, is pretty, is super helpful. And I could not imagine like not arming people with that information. And it's just sad that, you know, we have friends that are going the hospital route and they don't get any of this. Like, like you were saying, Lily, it's just a pamphlet and they call Ash, you know, and, and myself and they're like, okay, what do we got to worry about with this? And like, we're, we're in the position to, to push that information out and point them to birth fit in y'all's way to right. at least have a non-crazy, like the non-crazy filter. Yeah. But you got to remember too, I mean, um, uh, it feels like. Um, you know, and then you see this, dude, you're going to see it with, with like parenting and just everything. People have this confirmation bias where like in their mind, what they're doing is the best thing. And what they're really looking for is somebody to confirm that this is the right thing. And then when you mm -hmm. tell them that it's wrong, they like fight and tooth and nail against it instead of being like, uh, yeah, like, uh, like, you know, the vegan, oh, this is the healthiest yeah. way. And you're like, um, it's not. So but to her, this, oh, to her credit yeah. real quick, the, she did introduce, um, eggs, eggs and I think seafood into her diet, the, the vegan gal. Yeah, so the CH choline. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. Uh, so Lily, this is my question. Going back to when you mentioned you had this cognitive dissonance between what the guidelines were and what you were seeing with your patients, at what moment was it a particular case or just so much of what you're seeing with your clients that led you to go away from these guidelines and recommendations and start to build your own? It definitely built over time. I mean, I was in a really unusual position in that before I was heavily involved clinically with gestational diabetes management, and, and I was working at a, a perinatologist office who specialized in gestational diabetes specifically. So that's pretty much what I did day in, day out. It wasn't like the random case. Um, so I pretty quickly saw that the guidelines weren't working. What was hard for me is that I had actually already worked on the policies for gestational diabetes and following the quote best evidence, I mean, I didn't have enough data to disprove that, you know, we needed 175 grams per day. Um, and so that was something that took a lot of talking to clinicians who use low carb in practice. And there were some, not many, um, looking a lot more deeply at the research on what the risks might be of going low carb, doing micronutrient analyses on meal plans to see like, are we going to miss out on things if we take this out? Cause that's what they claim. Like 
cut back on your grains and you're going to have a whole bunch of nutrient deficiencies, right? Yeah. That just uh, isn't the case. Selenium, selenium, but you can get those in Brazil nuts. So it's pretty funny <laughs> how like all the things that are usually in the grains can be actually easily substituted with just some intelligent other yeah. you know yeah. options interventions for yeah intervention. like uh have a brazil nut like it's like the equivalent of eating like six loaves of bread mm-hmm. like one brazil one nut. yeah yeah uh, or have some science. oysters or sardines yeah. fish i mean you're getting way more micronutrients in there with essentially no effect on your blood sugar either um, so it, it grew over time, but I was in a fortunate position where I was pretty much given permission to do whatever I could to help people manage their blood sugar with food. I was really given free reign to reformulate things. And so they thought I was like some sort of miracle worker because suddenly our rates of requiring insulin and medication were literally cut in half. And we had way less like big babies, macrosomic babies. We had way less um, women also getting diagnosed with preeclampsia, which is something that tends to go hand in hand with gestational diabetes. Just the birth outcomes were so much better. My patients were happier. They weren't like forcing themselves to carb load just to try to comply with some meal plan. Um, so the outcomes were just so much better that it, it just only made sense. But um, it took a lot of time and a lot of research for me to feel comfortable even going there because again, first do no harm. You never want to be causing any issues. It was just, it felt like following the guidelines was doing so much more harm that I couldn't see how there was a way, like we had to improve upon what we were doing. So you got these great results and then they came in and shut you down. No, no. Oh, I I was waiting for that. And then they shut us down, you know, because we, we happily, happily existed and, and did our thing and the hospital was very confused because they'd have gestational diabetes on the chart of the patient and be expecting a 10 pound baby. And then they'd have a normal sized infant be like, okay, what? So, um, it was, it was a pretty cool experience and you know, the U S it'll probably be a while till they ever update their guidelines, but Uh, The Czech Republic actually changed their guidelines for gestational diabetes, and they completely eliminated their mandatory minimum level of carbohydrates um, for gestational diabetes, and they're reporting the same sort of beneficial outcomes that I saw as well. So change is coming. It's just going to take some time. (laughs) It's a grassroots thing here in the U.S. Yeah, and it's just such, like you said earlier, it's perceived like such a high-risk uh, set of attributes to tinker with it during the during childbirth right. and with pregnancy. So, but ironically, you start looking at the data, and it's like you know we've been talking about carbs this whole time, but you find so many issues with the guidelines. I mean, the first ever study to directly measure protein requirements in pregnant women was performed in 2015. So that's only four years ago, and they found across pregnancy it, it significantly underestimated protein requirements for pregnant women. So it was like 39% lower than they should be in the first half of pregnancy and 73% lower than it should be in the latter stages of pregnancy. So it's like, are we really doing no harm by following the guidelines? Like, I don't know, protein is a pretty important macronutrient for you know, it's, it, growing it, a human. It feels like uh, for some reason, protein is like under fire recently. Like you saw the whole deal with that movie that Arnold and James Cameron are putting out about the protein deal. And it's like, uh, like it just, to me, it just seems insane. Like I, I know for my wife, she ate, I think like over one gram of protein per pound of body weight. So she was like a hundred and like 50, 160, you know, 200 grams of protein. And that was what, you know, she's like, it actually tastes better. And like, this is, you know, like people like, you know, the, the whole pregnant woman crave thing. She's like, ah, I didn't, you know, I think she, yeah, it just, it's, um, it sounds, and then this is always interesting. Like when, when you, when you're talking about this, we're like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense. And then when you're talking to other people, they're like, if I don't eat carbs, I'm going to die. Right. And you're like, what? I mean, I've, right. I've heard these for years and it's just like, man, like I, I don't know where this misinformation, like my other favorite one is, oh, the, oh, the body can only process 20 grams of car- uh, protein at a time. It's like, yeah, that makes no, no sense. nobody's ever said that. Mm-hmm. You know, they looked at it and they were talking about protein synthesis in terms of a single muscle that if I exercised a single muscle, how much protein would I need to consume in post-workout to drive protein synthesis? And they were like, oh, 20 grams. But what if you train a whole bunch of muscles? How much do you need there? Do you need 20 or, per muscle? Yeah, you're 
290 pounds, 10% body fat. Yeah. Versus like, like a 14-year-old uh, like kid yeah. who's... Yeah. That's, that's what comes down with these like blanket statements. And it just, it, to me, it's uh, it, like, it doesn't sound crazy. And it, like, it just kind of makes sense. But yeah, when you start talking about it, and like, like Lou talking about going to that class with like, uh, people that have never heard this stuff, and they're like, have you ever heard, anybody ever told you to eat real food? And you're like, I didn't know we had to have that conversation. What kind of yeah. food, if you don't eat real food, what kind of food are, are you eating? Mm-hmm. Fake food? Snickers. Sn- <laughs> <laughs> Cheetos and Snickers, yum. It's yeah, blows yeah, my mind. Truly, what's the alternative? I mean, it's eating just yeah. processed junk. Well, the, the and other, it's, it's the, funny. I mean, you start really looking at the guidelines. They're like, eat half your grains whole. I'm like, so you're essentially telling us that we should eat half of our grains, half of this, half, essentially a quarter of our diet. If we're supposed to get like half of our diet from carbs, and you're telling us a quarter of our diet, it's like a good idea for it to come from refined carbohydrates. That doesn't make any sense, <laughs> especially if you're going to try to meet your micronutrient needs. But of course, you know, the refined grain products are fortified with a couple B vitamins and iron, right? So like you're covered, you're good. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. I just remember when uh, my wife got pregnant and we went to the doc, like one of like the things they, they had a pamphlet about cutting back soda intake. Oh. And they were like, you know, hey, like you can have like, you know, up to like two, you know, uh, two cans of soda a day, but you should cut it back to two. Like, I just remember being like... Yeah, we're not going to need that one. Like, I like, uh, yeah, like it just, it, it, it blew my mind. Like, but then I, you know, you also have to remember, like when you extrapolate this thing, like we are in such a, a, a pin, like just like a, a, like a pin dot of, 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 uh, of, of society. Yeah. I'm looking for my kids. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, and like, you know, uh, it's like when people talk about, uh, you know, training dust, like I uh, recently had somebody be like, Hey, have you heard of this CrossFit thing? And I was like, no, tell me all about it. <laughs> like, I, I didn't even know that there were people that didn't know what the CrossFit what? was. That was Callie's joke at the airport. Our producer would wear a shirt that said CrossFit football. And somebody comes up, oh, you do CrossFit? No. What's that? <laughs> Literally wearing the shirt. Hilarious. I, it, it just, it, it seems crazy to me that people, uh, like, haven't heard of this information or haven't researched it. But then I also have to remember, man, it's 350 million people. And, uh, you know, our, our podcast only gets two or three people. Mm-hmm. Love you, Ma. Yeah, thanks, Mom. So, Lily, let's yeah, talk. I, it, if go, you go, work, go. like, in conventional dietetics, by the way, I think this is sometimes why nutrition information that dietitians give out is, like, really seems not non-intelligent, maybe. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> I don't want to diss my own profession, but, or, or straight up wrong, there is that. Um, is sometimes the, you know, if you're just working at a standard clinic uh, or a hospital or something, I mean, the types of people that you see really are consuming mass quantities of added sugar, just mass. I mean, I would have clients come in with like, you know, freaking big gulp. I'm like, that is like more than a glucose tolerance test right there, right in that cup, you know, and that's like part of their lunch. And not to mention the added sugar that came in all the rest of the processed stuff they got with their fast food meals. So it's really staggering. I saw one statistic in the US that 85% of carbohydrates consumed are refined carbohydrates. That means white flour products and added sugar, essentially. I mean, what a mess. So it's usually not the people who are like overdoing the whole grains, right? Or overdoing the legumes or, you know, some people definitely overdo the fruit, usually in the smoothie form, but usually people aren't overdoing like whole fruit. They're going hog wild on sugar and soda and cakes and cookies and pasta and bread. And they just have no idea what it's doing to their bodies. So yeah, it's hard because I'm also tend to be speaking to that like 5% of the population who's nutrition aware already. Um, but we can't forget that there's a huge swath of the population who actually might be served by a pamphlet that tells them to drink less soda, you know? I, I, I used to think um, this is kind of a strange observation I had recently. Like, um, you know, I, I was, you, you know, from my talk, I was uh, kind of in my little bubble playing in the NFL. And I kind of decided, uh, like, understanding of like, um, you know, Hey, like there was like an obesity epidemic and like, you know, seeing obviously the fans come to games 
and like being like, man, like people are really out of shape. Uh, but we didn't, I didn't necessarily train at a commercial gym. I wasn't really on the internet. Like I just didn't really interact with, uh, like we do now. And so I just kind of thought like, ah, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's something, you know, chemically, maybe there's something hormonally or, you know, like maybe it's, um, you know, something outside their control that's kind of allowed them to get into this, uh, into this state. And then I remember like standing out at the games in Philadelphia and then like looking out in the crowd and just like seeing this, like, you know, 400 pound dude just smashing hot dogs in his face with like beer and being like, well, maybe it's self-control issue. And then when we got out into the, um, you know, when I retired and kind of got into this cross into the CrossFit scene and first started working, I, I kind of had, had a similar kind of understanding and being like, you know, uh, maybe there's something more going on into this than we know. Maybe it just doesn't come down to this, like, you know, calorie balance, energy expenditure, you know, thermodynamics, the whole deal. And like, hey, you know, if, uh, you know, if, because for me, if I needed to gain weight, I ate more food, I would weigh myself, I'd weigh my calories and be like, hey, this is what I burned today. This is what, you know, and I'd kind of like, you know, figure it out and be like, if I need to lose some weight, I'd eat less, exercise more, and I'd just kind of follow the scale. And I figured maybe, uh, maybe that's for a healthy individual, maybe unhealthy individuals, it doesn't work like that. And then over the last 10 years, I realized that uh, it's not that people are lazy, even though people are, it's just the fact that people have no concept of the amount of calories that they consume on a daily basis. So like their estimation, well, I said one Coke and they don't realize that there's, you know, 50 grams of sugar in that, you know, in, in that drink that I just had or this and they, and they go back and they're like, oh, well, I just had one Coke or I just had this one smoothie. Little do they know that they had the, uh, smoothie from uh, Smoothie King. It's the 800 pound gorilla that has, you know, 900 calories and 45 grams of turbonado in it. I mean, it's like, you know, and you see somebody consume that and you're like, dude, that has, uh, you know, enough calories in it for like three or four meals. And so when we started going through and doing these, um, you know, like kind of working with people on their nutrition and trying to, you know, pair it up with performance, I had one client who would bring me these uh, meal logs that were like the most perfect meal log I've ever seen, like down to like, like, you know, the point one gram. And uh, I'm looking at this guy's meal log and I'm like, so you're telling me you've eaten like this for 60 days and I'm looking at you and we haven't had a weight change in this. And I remember just like scratching my head and being like, man, maybe there's something, something to this. Maybe there's some, you know, hormonal issue there. And I, I dove down and basically came down to it. It's like, if you stay in a caloric deficit long enough, uh, you will eventually trim your body size. It just, it's just how it naturally happens. And then I realized that most people, you know, with like, you know, leptin and, you know, insulin, and you go through all these different processes of like, you know, hunger and feast and famine and overfeed this. And then realizing that like, you know, carbohydrates, uh, you know, release serotonin and there's kind of this whole, I mean, the, the whole psychology of food consumption. And I remember for that guy, he's like, what do you think I do? I was like, I think you should just eat protein. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I want you to try to overconsume protein at every single meal. That was the only thing that worked. Because if I found out that protein was the only food that you really can't overconsume, a la, let's go to Fogo de Chao and eat myself sick and then you don't want to eat for two days. Mm -hmm. I actually was like, I want you to overeat on, every, on protein. I don't want you to eat any other macronutrient. Just focus on protein. And he ended up leaning out on that one because he couldn't overeat. And it just became like super interesting that like people, it wasn't that they were necessarily lazy and, you know, people that want to get in shape in this, it just comes down to the idea that most people have no concept of what they put into their body and the quantities in which they do. And um, just asking people to track some macronutrients, which we started doing years ago, and just being able to be like, you know, you don't have to be 100%, but at least just understand that like in the palm of my hand fits about six ounces of this, like just, you know, ballpark, you don't have to weigh and measure everything, but right. you have to understand what you're consuming. And it just seemed, seemed crazy to me that, uh, with pregnant women that they do no recommendations. So there's no like, Hey, you know what? Like here's a preferred macronutrient ratio. This is how much you should, you should consume. Um, you know, based upon this, we know like, like there was really nothing. Uh, when, when I sat down, I remember reaching out to Chris Cresser, you know, years ago when my wife was pregnant being like, how come nobody's done this? And he's like, um, I think people are too nervous to put a stake in the ground because of the fact that yeah. there's liability associated with it, that if we were exactly. to put in and say, Hey, this, I mean, you know, and, and then even if somebody doesn't follow it, but read it and thinks they followed it and then they didn't have a favorable outcome, then you're still liable because they're going to be like, no, I did exactly what you told me to when you really didn't. Right. And like that this, thing, uh, yeah. like, I, I, yeah, it just blew my mind. And this is precisely why, Real Food for Pregnancy has 934 scientific references because my ass is on the line, essentially. You know, people are really afraid to touch pregnancy with like a 10-foot pole. 
Um, I remember going on Rob Wolf's podcast back in 2015 when I had the first book out and he was like, I can't remember the words he used, but essentially like you're going to have like flaming daggers thrown at you for putting this out there. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised to not have flaming daggers thrown my way. Um, I think because if you implement the advice, it actually works. But um, you're exactly right on the on the macros. I mean, a lot of times it's just a matter of like, eat more protein. And then by default, you're more satiated. Your blood sugar and insulin responses are better. You're just not as hungry for as much junk food. I mean, it's it sounds like it's too simplistic, but it really is like more protein. And one thing I would always say is no naked carbs. Like if you're going to have carbs, you have to have them with some fat or protein. And you can see it in blood sugar monitoring. This is why it was like so easy to make the connection with clients who had gestational diabetes or for anybody who has the luxury of having a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM, you can see the response in blood sugar when you have like just carbs by themselves versus having a little carbs, but also having protein and fat in there. It's like a significant difference in your blood sugar response. And you're also just not as hungry. So you throw in that mindful eating component into it and people don't have to be so um, controlling or obsessive about all the variables. It's just like, don't overdo the carbs. If you're eating them, eat some protein with them and overall eat more protein. <laughs> it's like most of the other things work themselves out. Yeah. It just, it, it, it blew my mind that the, uh, the only macro you really can't overeat on is, uh, animal-based proteins. Like you'll like, I mean, and we, we you know, every time we go to a Brazilian barbecue, we try. <laughs> and, uh, I always remember thinking like, what if we got to eat at Brazilian barbecue like three times a day? It would like, they would slow down. You would just wouldn't eat as much. No, you just get there and be like, I can't. Uh, I think it's those cheesy rolls, but well, that's the problem is the cheesy rolls. I could eat a million of those. <laughs> the plantains. They're the called, plantain. they're called poly de queijo cheese breads. They're mm-hmm. Brazilian, but yeah. like, yeah, I mean that like, uh, it just, man. It, so uh, I was thinking it, about making what's called poly de, poly de queijo. Could you make a pizza crust out of that? Uh, I think yeah, it would be amazing. I think you make a pizza crust out of that and then you put a little pizza on there and you got yourself a pretty like balanced meal. <laughs> It does sound amazing. So, Lily, I'm, I'm curious uh, your experience or guidance that you're now providing for any help with modifying behavior change. So I'm sure a lot of the, the guidelines that you're presenting are, are culture shocks or adjustments. So how do you help others, guide others to help instill behavior change, keeping that, that young baby in mind? So I, I feel like a lot of it, there, there's one part of it, which is, the education piece, making people aware that you actually have the power to change your experience of pregnancy. So like just a more comfortable pregnancy, lower risk of complications, less chance of quote, risking out of your birth preference of choice. Like you were talking about, you know, wanting to birth at the birth center. A lot of times you risk out if you have a certain complication. And so if you can lower that risk with food and lifestyle, sometimes that's a huge motivating factor. Um, Because I think the way that pregnancy is approached in general is like, it's something that happens to you and you have no control over the trajectory of your pregnancy. Um, And as somebody who's also currently pregnant, you know, there's some of it that is just out of your control. And that like, it's sometimes, you know, you just do the best that you can, but you also can stack the deck in your favor. So I think approaching it from that aspect really helps people, um, you know, decide to, to, you know, make an informed choice on what they are or aren't going to do. And then I think the other part of it for me is, you know, I'm really big on the mindful eating aspect. I think like all the nutrition knowledge in the world is great, but there's something to be said for what's going to keep you eating a specific way, you know? I don't eat perfectly. I make no claims to eat perfectly. Um, and when I sway from eating a more heavily real food influenced diet to eating, you know, some chips or some ice cream or whatever, my body feels the difference. It, it responds with feedback that like, oh, I feel really bloated. Oh, I'm kind of swollen today. Usually I'm not swollen in pregnancy. That's something I'm able to avoid. But like, Oh man, I had too much of whatever was at that barbecue yesterday. And now this is where I'm at. And so the food choices are not a, a matter of 
feel guilty because I ate something like off the plan or, you know, not clean or whatever. It's more of a matter of, I don't feel as well when I eat XYZ. So I'm going to choose to eat less of XYZ and more of the other stuff that keeps me feeling well. So it's just sort of continually making those choices on what makes you feel good. (laughs) And it sounds really simplistic, but they've actually shown in research studies that people who embrace a more of a mindful eating approach actually eat a healthier diet overall and less junk food. It's just something that naturally happens versus when people are sort of scared into eating a certain way or feel like it all needs to be super controlled, then they don't necessarily stick to it. They can go through that like binge and and fast cycle and sort of end up with a disordered eating pattern. So I'm huge on mindful eating. I just think it's it's so helpful and I've seen it really helpful in practice as well. I think it complements the real food stuff um, rather than works against it, which is I think how sometimes people interpret mindful eating as like, you have permission to eat whatever you want. <laughs> so people are just like, I'm mindfully eating junk food all day. Like if you're really mindfully eating, you'll notice that you don't feel well, right? Eventually you'll want to shift away from that. But that goes back to probably thinking a little more, you know, taking some nutritional common sense and thinking about your macros, thinking about getting enough protein um, and, and sort of gradually moving that direction. My favorite is that I'm eating for two. And I'm like, yeah, but what, yeah. what do you weigh six ounces? Skudnik is, is writing an article series. He's like, it's not eating for two. It's eating for 1.1. <laughs> and he just put a, an intentional, mindful eating article out, Ben Skudnik. And part of it was battle buddy. And as I'm thinking like, okay, well, your battle buddy is your, your little baby, your little buddy. As mindful. I don't yeah. know, I'm just trying to think behavior change I know, strategies. Man, man I, I was so excited my wife got pregnant because I was like, man, we're going to go out and just like crush junk food. And she had like zero to- like uh, taste for that. She's like, no, I just want to eat steaks. And I'm like, nope. oh, okay, I guess we'll see more steaks. Not the summer's house. It's not how we do things. We have rules. We have limits, uh, John. Dude, you set the rules early. I told, I, I told my wife, I'm like, dude, I'm so excited. Um, like, we're going to eat, like, we're going to go have pizza. We're going to have ribs. Like, I was just thinking we were going to go just crush food. No, that didn't happen. Well, Ashley accidentally emailed me your shopping list for the grocery store, and uh, I don't know. There's yeah. So what she get popsicles? Like I'm not gonna eat a popsicle. Popsicles are dumb. Are you kidding me? I love popsicles. I know you do, uh, dude. Uh, me and the whole get, box. Yeah. Celebrate every flavor. <laughs> <laughs> so my kids get popsicles, and I'll like go in there and be like, you know what? There's five in that box. I think they're gonna do better with three popsicles. So Dad's gonna eat two popsicles. Or they got a battle over <laughs> and, that last and, one. And then the, the funny part is they'll come out and be like, did you eat my popsicles? I'll be like, no. With like popsicles. Who would who would eat two popsicles? They're like, I'll, I'll tell you who it was. It was Tex. That damn yeah, Sasquatch. <laughs> no, I, I blame it all the time. I'm like, did Mister Tex come in and steal your popsicles? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mister yeah, Snack. Uh, Tex stayed at my house and crushed all my kids' snack food, like all their like I don't know like little treat things. And uh, laying on the grenade for the family. And the best is they were like, hey, uh, where'd all the macaroons and all that? I'm like, uh, I don't know where they all went. And they're like, Mister hmm, Tex ate them all. And then he's like, oh yeah, sure did. Ate them all. They're lovely. <laughs> Yeah, delicious. So, Lily, you, so you're on Rob's podcast, you know, back 2015-ish. Have you been taking flaming daggers for your position from colleagues or angry pregnant women? or Because Rob takes flaming fathers? daggers every day. Rob does take flaming daggers every day. There's <laughs> I've never seen anybody like, uh, dude, I like... I, yeah, like uh, unbelievable. But yeah, like uh, Luke's yeah. right. Like, like, what's the pushback? Are are people like I? I just don't. I can't really understand like where the pushback comes from. But I think people. It's a, such a sensitive space for some reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised. Like I said, that I have had way fewer flaming daggers thrown my way um, than expected. However. I think the thing I get the most, it's funny. It's the thing I get the most praise for, but also the most heat for. And that is there's a section in chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy called The Challenges of a Vegetarian Diet in Pregnancy. And I go through nutrient by nutrient, the nutrients that you may either not obtain, not obtain in sufficient quantities, not obtain in the right form, or have difficulty absorbing insufficient quantities from a vegetarian or mostly a fully vegan diet. And I mean, it's a super evidence-based, non-emotional discussion. 
I used to be vegetarian. I have many friends who are vegetarian and vegan, even though we see differently on the nutrition thing, we still, you know, we're, we're amicable and we're friends and or family. Um, and that's the part that I get a lot of uh, negative feedback on. And at the same time, I get the most positive feedback on that because I also hear literally dozens of people on a weekly basis contact me sharing their fertility journey, their pregnancy, like one pregnancy, they were vegan. The next pregnancy, they incorporated animal foods. Um, people have been trying to conceive for 10 years and haven't been able to happen, have gone through IVF multiple times. They incorporate animal foods. Three, four months later, they're pregnant. They have a healthy pregnancy. I mean, I get so much more positive feedback on it that the negative feedback is really from the people who have a stake in, no pun intended, stake in the, the plant-based, I'll call it the plant-based agenda, really. Either they're a um, practitioner who has a program that promotes a vegan pregnancy, or they have been vegan for animal rights reasons for, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, there's just it's uncomfortable to be, to learn information that goes against what what's you've the, done what's your whole life. But then the, ironically, nobody has come back with a super evidence-based rebuttal to every point that I make in there because I'm not pulling this stuff out of thin air. It's like, look at the rates of vitamin B12 deficiency. Look at the impact that that has on baby's brain development. Look at the rates of vitamin B12 deficiency in breastfed infants of vegan mothers who are not supplementing adequately. Look at how the RDA underestimated the requirement of B12 by at least a factor of three. So even if you are supplementing, you got to go at least three times above what the RDA is, probably more if you're vegan. But like nobody's given this information, they're not given informed consent. So they make these decisions based on half information. And then, you know, I'm the one who's under fire because I'm pointing out that, like, that might have not been the best decision. So that's the part that I think most people are most critical on, for sure. Who's the governing body that makes the right, like, the recommendations for pregnancy? Is that the uh, AMA or American so Medical so You have, like, the Institute of Medicine, which sets a lot of your you know, recommended daily allowances or estimated average intake. And then you have like the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is the new name for the American Dietetic Association. And they put out their recommendations, but it's based on mostly IOM's nutrient guidelines. So when you start to look at where the nutrient guidelines may have went wrong, such as the macros, carbs, fat, and protein, those are all off in my opinion. And then a number of the micronutrients that are super off, like B12, underestimated by a factor of three, B6, underestimated, choline, underestimated, at least by a factor of two, omega-3 is probably underestimated, vitamin D, underestimated, probably by a factor of 10. I mean, then you start to see like, it's like this crumbling tower, <laughs> you know, like if our, if we're basing our sample meal plans for pregnancy off of information that has been refuted by newer research, I mean, newer even being like the past 20 years, like they really haven't been significantly reformed in decades, then like, what are we really, how evidence-based are these recommendations truly? Are, are uh, I mean, are, are these groups recommending like a uh, vegetarian vegan diet as a, you know, as a mode for a healthy pregnancy? Yes. So the U.S. official stance is that a vegetarian or vegan diet can be appropriate for pregnancy if it's well-planned and if it's supplemented. But when you look at the nutrients of concern on their list, it doesn't scratch the surface. They're just looking at like the basics. They don't have choline on that list, for example. And I have like a big article on my site called... Um, called choline folate's long lost cousin or something and it's all about i have a whole analysis on the vegan meal plan put out by a practice group from the academy of nutrition and dietetics and the amount of choline it contains doesn't even meet the current recommendation and it's about two-thirds lower than it should be if you're looking at the data we have from randomized controlled trials showing that we need a heck of a lot more choline you're just not going to do it 
Now, if you're vegan and you make the choice to incorporate a couple choice, really nutrient-dense animal foods, like that person you mentioned who incorporates eggs and seafood, you're actually well on your way to mitigating most of those nutrient deficiency risks. I mean, with eggs, choline is pretty much taken care of, assuming you're eating like a couple eggs a day. With seafood, especially if you're doing oysters, I mean... You're probably good on B12 and zinc and iron, you know, but most people aren't, aren't doing that. <laughs> so um, that, that's the part that gets tricky. So shifting gears a little, you talked earlier when we were on the gestational diabetes about this in uterine programming, kind of like an, an adverse or negative effect towards yeah. uh, baby and ultimately child and adulthood. Is there, is anyone looking uh, in that, like, we'll call it in uterine program and nutritional intervention on more positive outcomes? Like, let's say you did want to affect height or bone density, or I don't know, like whatever name performance attribute X, um, that higher doses or higher intake of certain micronutrients or whatever have positive in uterine programming response. I say that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we have um, pretty strong data on vitamin D, for example, um, influencing babies' bone development, uh, brain development. So on bone development specifically, they can track um, bone density in children later in life based on a mother's vitamin D levels during pregnancy. That's improved. Their um, measures of behavior improve. Their risks of asthma and um, allergies is decreased if a mom has sufficient vitamin D. So that's like a huge one. Um, We definitely have data on B12, promoting better cognitive development. Same goes for choline. If you supply double the quantity of choline compared to the current recommendation, when they measure infant reaction time at four different points in infancy and toddlerhood, by far and above, every time the kids from the high choline group perform better. Um, so we have we have a lot of really positive data on on supplying adequate amounts of these nutrients. Omega threes, DHA, that's another big one where we have a lot of beneficial effects on cognitive function and behavior. Um, so definitely, we have we have positive to to outweigh some of the negative studies. Although sometimes you have to talk negative in order to mm-hmm. figure out what to study to show a positive, right? Yeah, and I was going to say, what ex- all the things you have mentioned were just coincidentally all of the underestimated RDAs and allowances in kind of like the, the, the global recommendation by some of these groups, right? Which is sad. So we're programming Ironic. weak individuals. Did you hear that about yeah. bone density, Tex? I heard. So listeners, if you recall, Tex claimed to have the densest bones for about the three 99 years. percentile. And then we John all and I, no, we all hang on, hang on. <laughs> these, these micro percents matter. And then John and I got a DEXA scan. It's true. And we came in at, by a factor of like what, two or three X, his bone density. Yeah. Two or and, three X. And, uh, yeah. Don't and, let the truth get and, away. And, and, the, <laughs> and the crazy part is Luke's, uh, Luke's skull had like the no biggest amount of uh, bone density that they'd mm-hmm. ever scanned. That's right. Like it was seven mm-hmm. times out of like a normal human being. You couldn't, you, you don't understand the weight I bear on my shoulders carrying the weight of the world, not to mention this huge head. It's like a satellite. Yeah, I yeah. just remember... And lack of fat. And you know what our brain's made out of? Uh, spaghetti. Fat. In your brain, in your skull. <laughs> That's why it appears so dense. Because uh, lack of fat in your sense. brain. It, it makes all the sense in the world. That so, makes no sense. It makes Listeners, s- you heard it. Vitamin D, bone density... That's what we got to focus on. That's all that matters. It's the only coefficient. Uh, well, reaction time. If you are That's destined to be a small child... <laughs> You can supplement to increase your reaction time because so like speed a, kills. Like uh, like six feet, like six one, six two, like a small child, right? <laughs> Shut up, John. You and your Cro-Magnum <laughs> yeah. build over uh, there. <laughs> well, I, I just I, I just didn't know they made people this small. I like I just got when I got uh, out of the NFL, I didn't realize that there was a whole race of hobbits out there. I've seen the yeah, news, text. newspaper clipping framed where woman gives birth to full grown man <laughs> from March thirtieth, nineteen seventy six, framed in your in your bathroom. Dude, so. first of all, you guys have met my mom uh my favorite story is my mom's water break she drives herself to the hospital has me in 45 minutes and is out of there before noon so uh and she was like yeah why would you take those drugs it just prolongs it you gotta have a lot of anger to get that baby out yeah, doris wellborn was, yeah. was a special uh woman yeah no i, I just Savage. like 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 hearing these stories and like uh she's like i don't know why these women would take drugs like during like a uh, uh, delivery and i'm like what do you mean she's like well it just kind of like 
prolongs it. Like if there's intense pain, you just get it over with. She's like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, I, that's why the human race has subsided and ba- basically uh, survived for all these years. Cause there's women like you, you know, like it's sort of like, ah, it's, yeah, just, yeah. Like, uh, like the labor, like, oh, I was in labor for 40 hours. And my mom was like, uh, cause uh, there, there was a story. Um, I forgot who, who was telling, uh, us the story that she was like, you know, in labor for this like extended period of time, which seemed crazy to me. My mom was like, wow, that's so crazy. Like, uh, how, how does, you know, and like, like the last lady was explaining it to my mom, you could just see this look on her face of like complete, just shock, like perplexed and being like, ah, oh, that, that, like, that's terrible. Like, why didn't they do something? And they're like, oh, the, you know, I was on these drugs. My mom was like, oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's terrible. So yeah, I just, I think we need a little bit more of that. A little more of the, uh, old, old timers. Yeah. Anything else, Dex? So what, what do you got? You almost had something. Lily, if, uh, folks want to find your book, find your site, find your info, can you point them in the right place? You bet. Yeah. My website is lilynicholsrdn.com and that'll have a link uh, for my books where you can buy them. They're available obviously on Amazon, um, Kindle paperback and also audible for real food for pregnancy. Um, but some bookstores also carry it as well. Um, Barnes and Noble being one of them. And I also give away the first chapter for free of real food for pregnancy. So if you just want to get like into the, what is this real food thing and how it can impact your pregnancy and your baby's development and why that matters. Um, that's, that's all up there. Plus there's actually a really cool thing in that chapter, which is a comparison in the nutrient density from the conventional guidelines meal plan which like by the way the breakfast is um oatmeal skim milk and strawberries uh compared to one of my meal plans and then you could just see in black and white like when we're talking about real food and getting more micronutrients in your diet i mean it's night and day and it can actually like taste good (laughs) and be like a sustainable yummy choice so yeah, that's all up there. And then in terms of social media, I'm most active these days on Instagram. My handle's the same as my website. So Lily Nichols RDN. Awesome, Lily. Thanks for taking the time to chat with Power Athlete Nation. Hopefully this empowers some future parents or like arms people with info to push out to the normies in the world. You know, because well, there are people is, I hope are switched Well, on seeing is that I already have kids and you got a kid in the way. I mean, really the only person we're going to influence is the future, the you know, intern and maybe, well. I was going to say text, but then, you know, oh, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I mean. So, Lily, if you see me pointing what? in this quarter, there's an intern over there. We don't allow him to talk or get on camera or anything. He only can use sign language. Um, but maybe there's a baby in his future before text, I would imagine. No, I'm thinking positively. What? It'll, yeah. What, I'll that, read this book. That you're going to have a baby? That you're going to go on a bachelor party and wake up with a baby like The Hangover? <laughs> oh, God, that'd be amazing. But no, no, you know, conventional methods for that. <laughs> Well, you got to talk to some girls first. So, hey, if you would like um, to talk to Tex, Callie at Power Athlete Callie HQ. At Power Power Athlete Athlete HQ. <laughs> Callie is Tex's handler. She, she schedules all of his dates, which are plentiful. <laughs> Not really. But, ladies, you can ah, do it. Burn, no, burn Ban is on. Uh, Lily, we'll let you go. We're just going to start making fun of Tex for the next hour. You don't have to sit in on it. Um, it's entertaining. <laughs> what? <laughs> See, that's why the people show up. Oh, kiddo, Cash, say Hello. Oh. Uh, nope. Oh, no love from cash. But that's Lily. bold to leave your door open. I mean, if my kids come <laughs> with me and I'm on, on a podcast, like that door is locked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bad. Never know what's going to happen when he runs in. <laughs> that's right. But uh, I guess Luke, till next time we see you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Great. Take care. Drop Thank you. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Lily Nichols has two books available for purchase, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. You can peruse her website by heading to lilynicholsrdn.com or by heading to her Instagram under the same handle, lilynicholsrdn. And if you are interested in that date with text, yeah, feel free to shoot me an email with the subject line, quote, I'd like to get to know you. Currently accepting only female applicants. Sorry, fellas. Until next time. Bye!